everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today we cover one of the largest fintech series A's in history, a $100 million raise by a Utah-based company called Taxbit. Taxbit is solving the enormous global problem of taxes and cryptocurrency. They offer a suite of products for consumers, enterprises, and governments to easily aggregate and analyze crypto balances, generate and review tax forms, recommend tax loss harvesting strategies, and more through their API suite and software. Whether you're a platform that needs to issue 1099s or a user that needs to report their taxes, Taxbit's tax software unifies this process. We've placed a discount code in the episode link as well in case you're rushing to hit that May 15 deadline. This $100 million round includes a who's who of investing, such as Tiger Global, Paradigm, Coinbase Ventures, PayPal Ventures, Winklevoss Capital, Bill Ackman, and Qualtrics co-founder Ryan Smith. Taxbit was started by two brothers, Austin and Justin Woodward, who joined me today, and they built this product in their parents' basement. A CPA and JD, respectively, they have built a rocket ship of a company. In today's episode, we dive into their great founding story and the interesting ways they each got involved in crypto, their deep bullishness on crypto, blockchain, and a tokenized economy, how Taxbit works and benefits each of the three customer types, the difficulties of hiring and how it acts as the ultimate litmus test for success in early stages, the good and bad of building a company with your brother, the crypto regulatory environment, new products and launches to look forward to, and more. This is a fun episode. Let's get started. Austin and Justin, welcome to today's episode of the War and Fintech podcast. It is fantastic having you both on today in the wake of Taxbit's $100 million Series A, perhaps the largest Series A raise I've ever seen. Great to be here, Ryan. Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're excited to talk to you. Great. So before we jump into Taxbit and, of course, this just monstrous Series A, I want to learn more about each of you. Can you each just walk me through your background, each one a bit untraditional for crypto startups, although I don't know if there is such a thing as a traditional crypto background anymore, and then kind of leading up to starting Taxbit. Austin, we can start with you. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm a CPA and I got really fortunate. I started my career at a rocket ship SaaS tech company named Qualtrics. So Qualtrics is located in Utah here, which is where Justin and I are started Taxbit and kind of followed the untraditional route where most of my colleagues were going to the big four and doing that, which is a great career path. And my story is a little bit untraditional in that sense, in that I joined Qualtrics as an early, early employee, one of their first accounting team members, and I was very fortunate. My career progressed really quickly along with that company as well. And so from there, I was just exposed to all things tech and all things SaaS. How do you go from 70 employees to 3,000, from 10 million in ARR to 400 all within a matter of you know half of a decade. And so it was a really great learning experience in all aspects you can imagine. You're not siloed or pigeonholed at a company that's going through that. You're actually getting exposure to things that are well beyond your years, but it was fun. And that was something that was contagious, honestly, and was something that I was always thinking, I have to replicate this in some degree through my entrepreneurial mind. Uh, so really fortunate that you know, Justin and I were, were able to replicate that to some degree and we're just getting started. I know we're going to get into that side of things uh, later on. But yeah, that's my background is your traditional kind of accounting. 
Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. And I come from more of the legal background. So I was a uh, early adopter of cryptocurrency. Um, actually, I had a early client when I was at University of Chicago Law School. It was a Fortune 100 client that essentially wanted to accept Bitcoin in exchange for goods and services on their platform. This is back in 2014, brand new into the area. It was my first exposure to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as well. Um, kind of dove into all areas of the law, how we could make this work for this client. You know, we drove, dove into you know privacy, dove into security, but ultimately one of the largest hangups was tax. I became aware of kind of these tax issues in the cryptocurrency lens for quite a while and seeing the barrier for enterprises and institutions to adopting this asset class. So over the years, I started to dabble in cryptocurrency myself and was also exposed to more legal issues and different clients throughout my practice and ultimately let us springboarding tax, but to, you know, automate these regulatory hurdles for these clients. Awesome. Well, Austin, I want to follow up with you now. I saw in one of the articles that you mentioned that a formative moment was when you were responsible for Qualtrics payroll and there was a missing payroll in Australia because you sent a wire 10 minutes late that took 48 hours to clear. What's the story here and how did this kind of lead the two of you to tax bit if so? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I laugh about that because unfortunately it didn't just happen once and it wasn't just in Australia. You know, it's a <laughs> 21st century fintech technology is wires take forever to clear. And if they don't go out by whatever the time is, 4 p.m. Eastern each day, you're in trouble. And so cryptocurrency, you know, Justin and I are brothers. We haven't said that yet. So we've been very close. And so we were always talking, him being on the legal side, me on the accountant side. You can call us a little bit nerdy, tax attorney, CPA. So we're always talking about, hey, wow, what is this technology? And all of our spare time, like at night, we were just researching, researching. And it, right away, it was really evident that this is something that can disrupt fintech in a way unlike anything perhaps in our lifetimes. That's my hypothesis. And so the few things that stuck out to me was the first is what you just said, instantaneous cross-border remittances. That's an enormous problem, moving things from point A to point B, especially cross-borders. It takes a lot of time and a lot of clearinghouses and a lot of middlemen verifying the transaction. Well, blockchain, crypto, all of that happens trustless, intermediates through, you know, algorithms on, you know, mining networks and other things. So that was really disruptive. The second thing that stood out to me was just reducing or eliminating eventually the middleman on transaction fees. It was mind boggling to me to see all of the fees that banks and brokers take on moving things or swapping things from point A to point B once again. And so right away, I'm like, oh, wow, this can reduce the cost of transactions. Uh, the third thing was being able to tokenize real assets such as real estate and put them on a blockchain underlying ownership in an LLC or other vehicle and make these real estate vehicles accessible to everyday people, not just high net worth accredited individuals, not to mention the liquidity problem that's just solved. And so we have clients that are dabbling in that space right now. It's incredible. Uh, and I think we're going to start to, we're at the very early innings of seeing what I'm phrasing a tokenized economy where everything is digitalized, fractionalized, and able to be moved and backed by a token. Uh, and then I, I should add one other is, is the fourth, and that's just the inflationary problems that we have in impoverished countries and other things. And cryptocurrency can really act as a more solid alternative currency in a lens. I know in America, we have it really good here. 
uh, with the Federal Reserve and whatever your thoughts or opinions on the Fed are. I know that those vary and that's not the topic of this discussion. But in other countries, unfortunately, they don't have it as well. And, you know, it's really hard to even make ends meet because your paycheck is inflating the, the cost of goods. The purchasing power just reduces almost overnight. And so I'm really excited about the asset class. And those four you know, use cases are what led Justin and I to talk about this and say, wow, this we have to enable this asset class. Tax and accounting is a big barrier to it. We have to help this asset class go mainstream. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, so I'm half Lebanese and I have a lot, a lot of family that still live and work in Lebanon. You know, they've grown up there their whole lives and don't want to leave. But over the last two years, you know, for those that haven't been following, Lebanon has been going through a very severe economic crisis. And this really came to a head in 2020 with COVID and, of course, the the horrific Beirut blast. So their currency just got completely devalued. I mean, the inflation was insane. And on top of this, there was, you know, objectively horrific mismanagement by this Lebanese central bank and a lot of the financial institutions and people that were trying to audit them kept getting shut down. There was one compliance manager who was found killed. So there's just a lot of, you know, questionable things going on. And there was a run on the banks. And then, you know, the government imposed a limit of, I think, the equivalence of about $250 a week that Lebanese citizens were allowed to withdraw from their banks. And they couldn't get their money out. And it was just a disaster. And so, you know, I've always been lukewarm on, on Bitcoin and crypto. And, you know, I wasn't sure about it. And then after this use case, you know, how it could potentially help problems in Lebanon really opened my eyes. And so, you know, we're all very bullish now on, on cryptocurrency and, you know, for this boom on that point. So, you know, a lot of people are speculating and trying to, you know, strike gold on the next big coin. But here at Taxbit, you all are building the picks and shovels for this gold rush. So with that said, what exactly is Taxbit? You know, what problem is it solving and what is it trying to do for both consumers and the enterprise? Yeah, so very early on, Taxbit started as a consumer product at B2C. We're helping you know thousands of users fill out their everyday you know tax forms, their IRS 8949 tax forms. But we quickly became aware that you know this model's broken in a way. It's a bottom-up model where you know users have to go figure out their taxes themselves. And in all transparency, it's a complicated endeavor to try and figure this out. So our consumer product makes this as simple as possible. You can go connect your exchanges, link everything up and down your tax forms right there. We've also became, uh, through our work early on, we identified a massive problem in the information reporting scheme. And so we've also brought this technology straight to the brokerages and the exchanges themselves. So the exchanges can now provide their users with actually relevant tax, useful tax forms that they can, you know, hand to their CPA and good to go. Same like similar to the equity world. So Austin, Phil, and many anything on that end as well. Yeah, you know, cryptocurrency is a horrible name. It's actually not currency, it's property. And so what that means is every single movement, cost basis and tax reporting and accounting treatment, it's likely to trigger something. And so our technology is really that centralized platform that can connect all of the movements of the asset across blockchains 
wallets, point of sale systems, brokerages, and the whole ecosystem to be able to automate that headache in the background. So I think you said it right. We are picks and shovels, fintech SaaS company on the side of cryptocurrency adoption. We're not a money transmitter actually facilitating the assets movements ourselves. So that, that does make us unique in that sense. Yeah, and definitely a huge need. I remember I, the first time I bought Bitcoin, I think in 2016 or 2017 on Coinbase, I went to do my taxes and they forced me to download this like janky Excel file and I was manually calculating my PL and entry prices. It was brutal. So just digging in a little bit further, can you maybe walk us through an example? So what exchanges you might plug into and how the interface works? So I just go on TaxBit. Do I then enter let's say, you know, my BlockFi or my Celsius or my Coinbase account, and then I just get a tax form spit out, or is it something else? Yeah, so our consumer product that Justin alluded to, that's right. You can enter in just at a couple clicks. You can connect what's called API keys, view only rights to pull in your transaction data. And that way we can create you an entire account, run it through the tax engine and spit out your forms. But that's just kind of the compliance side. That's what we like to call the unsexy must-do piece. We've since moved on. People were calling us the TurboTax of crypto really early in this process. And that was glamorous for a few weeks, but we wanted to say, hey, we want to drive active usage. Like, how can we add value to this platform that isn't just clicking a couple buttons to file your taxes at year end? And so we've embedded in a whole suite of wealth optimization tools on top of that. Hey, if I want to go and spend cryptocurrency, which is becoming a use case now, what currency should I use? If I want to go and transact crypto, what is the tax impact of my trades before I do that? Are there tax loss harvesting trades? Many of the tools that Betterment and Wealthfront pioneered in the equity space, we brought to life in the crypto space. And so there's a whole suite of things that a tax bit consumer account will do. But let's go to the other side. You said you bought on Coinbase and they provided you a clunky PL report. Well, now imagine if your exchange accounts, you go within that tax center and you've got an entire suite of tax tools there at your fingertips that actually makes sense. Your entire tax forms there, your tax loss harvesting and optimization tools right there, real-time tax visibility right there. That's the model that Justin you know, alluded to earlier this morning that we're embedding straight within these enterprises, these brokerages. And so really excited about that as this technology is changing the way that cryptocurrency is used and invested in. Yeah. And so going to TaxBit Enterprise, I think the consumer play is certainly an obvious play. People have this big issue with doing crypto taxes, but then you did make this pivot, as you mentioned. How did you first begin selling into these institutions and kind of what had to be true for your clients to trust this white label solution? Great question. Consumer software is relatively easy to get off the ground, to get an MVP out there, to build. Enterprise software is a whole nother ballgame. It, you know, it took us three years of heads down, highly stealth mode, really focused on this with, you know, world-class developers. Our average tenure developer working on this was 20 plus years of experience and a whole team of them. And so the consumer product was, you know, I think what people viewed us as for three years because they didn't know what we were doing in the background. <laughs> but as this came to light... My experience was with enterprise software at Qualtrics. So I saw this whole playbook. We have access to world-class mentors that I worked with there, C-level type people the whole way. And so we just really didn't try to do it on ourselves. There's people that have done this. They've had the playbook and bring them in and help them. Good advisory team, really solid group of folks that know how to do this. And so that's what we did. 
And then it's all about building relationships, right? And so, you know, we don't have a big sales team. I'm the company's only salesperson today. That's changing pretty quick here. But it was spending a ton of time with these brokerages and with these partners of ours and trying not to guess, but rather get their feedback on what exactly it is that we should build in order to make sure that we hit the mark. And so there's a long playbook of going up market and building enterprise software. It's really complicated. And it's, it's not prescriptive either. Every company can you know tailor it to their product and their needs. It's not like there's a, a checklist that you have to go in this order. It's a lot of trial and error. And it's just staying close with your clients is the most important thing. Definitely. And then so going to, you know, the iteration design process of this. So for our listeners, these two brothers built this, I think, in their father's basement, if I if memory serves at the start. I have to ask, what was this like building, you know, with family members? And of course, you know, kind of moving back into your mom's basement, the old cliche. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Justin and I have been fortunate to had a close relationship our whole life. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't fight like brothers. I mean, I remember teenage right. years putting on the boxing gloves and having <laughs> broken noses and stuff with I each other. Good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to starting a business, honestly, it's all I really know. Like Qualtrics was formed by two brothers and their dad as well in a basement. And so it was this model that I had kind of essentially started my career around and I saw work brilliantly. That's not to say that it can work for every family, but one of the huge things about any co-founding relationship is you've got to have radical transparency, radical honesty with each other. And I think just that relationship of being comfortable with one another, we have very tough conversations and we will be the first to admit things aren't all roses and butterflies all the time. We've lost our temper and our cool have, you know, walked out on each other many times, but that's all part of starting a company. And it's how can you come together and it's not about who's right and who's wrong, but putting your brains together. And that's, that extends beyond the co-founding team, but hiring a best in world leadership team that can contribute to that and all have the humility to take brutal feedback and honesty to get to the right place. And so, yeah, we did start in a basement. It was a fun time. We, you know, this was back when we were trying to prove product market fit and get off the ground. And that was a cool part of our DNA and story. And uh, I think at one time we didn't have even four people working from there full time. We had four people living there, like sleeping and eating there full time. So it was basically like a college, you know, dorm room, essentially just a bunch of folks hanging out and doing what, doing what we love. Definitely. And then I, I want to talk about growing this team you know, I think, especially in the crypto world, I think the supply and demand of talent is pretty unbalanced. So many exciting companies and protocols and projects being built. How did you look to find talent and your first hires, especially being located in, you know, a non-traditional tech hub in Utah? Although there are companies like Galileo, I know Marcus is out there, and of course, Qualtrics has bucked the trend, but it's certainly not Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. We, uh, We've been fortunate on that, but I think Utah really has had a huge influx in talent and it's really booming, especially in this COVID world. We've just seen so many people migrate out this way, especially from the Bay Area. Um, and so that, that's exciting. There's a lot of talent here. With that said, Justin and I are actually from Seattle. That's where we grew up. And so we've had a couple of uh, talented folks, especially on the product and dev side, uh, that we've recruited from Seattle, one, one being a co-founder that moved out to Utah full time. And so we've, we've you know, definitely leveraged our relationships out there as well. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's a misconception that all tech companies need to be formed in Manhattan or the Bay. I think that's a huge misconception, especially even more so now in this post-COVID world where talent resides everywhere and it doesn't take uh, a specific city to be successful, uh, but rather it's more execution and the company and, and the vision and the people. And so yeah, I, that's kind of our short answer to that. Yeah, no, definitely. And how did you think about you know, what your first hires would look like and what questions were you asked them? Do you all have any go-to interview questions and how you thought about hiring? Hiring's tough. It's, it's really tough. There's a lot of intuition to it. There's, you're just never going to get it right all the time either. You have right. to accept. And so you do the best you can, but a good founders have to, you know, make tough decisions. And that includes if you get the wrong folks on the team, uh, being quick to reconcile that and uh, replace them with other folks. And so, yeah, we'd be lying if we said that we've got it right all the time. We've had to make tough decisions 100%. But our, just coming from trying to go up market and build enterprise-grade software, you can imagine 90% of our headcount for the first three years were engineers and you know, world-class engineers. And so we went really, really slim on every other functional area of the org, uh, except for customer support. I'll, I'll say that we've invested in customer support from day one, have which has been a great decision for us. But other than that, it was, okay, we're going to do more with less in other areas. That includes sales and marketing and legal and finance and, uh, you know, had to wear mini hats across all of those areas. But engineering and, and customer support is where we put in all of our resources for sure. And how did you source these hires? Was it a headhunter or LinkedIn? We did it ourselves. But you, it's just when you're a founder, you've got to wear tons of hats. And so it is reaching out to people directly. If you're using a headhunter with a, a seed stage company, your resources are not going to the right. Yeah, you've got to be able to inspire people and sell the vision to your team members. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do that to customers and to investors. And so it starts there. Can you recruit people? And I think that's your first kind of gut check moment. If you're having a tough time inspiring people on what you're building, then maybe you're not building the right thing. Or maybe your company isn't as great as you think it is. Because founders obviously have confirmation bias at all times, and you've got to fight against that. And so using that as a gut check when you're going and talking to people is, is a huge eye-opening moment as well. Yeah. And I mean, another group of people you definitely have to sell are investors. So going, of course, to the $100 million Series A that we had mentioned at the start of the episode, for our listeners, this Series A was led by Paradigm and Tiger Global, as well as PayPal Ventures, Winklevoss Capital, I think you all would recognize that name, Coinbase Ventures, Bill Ackman, and Qualtrics co-founder Ryan Smith. And one person said that the Woodwards brought so much energy to solving the crypto tax problem. For the pitch, they got the whole team on a Zoom call on a Saturday night, and they were almost jumping through the screen. A lot of questions here, but first, I want to understand what this fundraising process looked like and how you all syndicated this just unbelievable A-list of investors. I mean, I couldn't have picked it better myself if I had to pick you know, eight, eight investors in a crypto company. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ryan. We appreciate the kind words there. Let me go back actually even three years to our first fundraising raise and to kind of tell you how things have changed. Absolutely. That raise was very much 
me going out and banging on every door I possibly could, talking to hundreds of people and getting uh, rejected hundreds of times, right? And this was 2017 when cryptocurrency was a very different asset class than it was today. But the feedback was cryptocurrency taxes oxymoron. The two don't go together. And I'm like, well, I understand, but they need to go together if it's going to exist right. in the future. People just didn't see it. They didn't get it. Fast forward three years. And as I said, we went heads down during a bear market. You know, Cryptocurrency was trading at close to 3K most of these years that we were building our product. And then all of a sudden you have the whole boom. And it's not just a price boom. Pricing is one indicator, but institutional adoption is a better indicator. You've got Tesla and Elon Musk putting it on their balance sheet, MicroStrategy, Coinbase on the verge of one of the largest tech IPOs in the history of tech. You've got Visa and MasterCard coming out, PayPal rolling this out to all of their users and 30 million merchants, BlackRock. I can go on and on. All of this stuff has just happened within the last six months. And so as this whole ecosystem really has spurred, investors looked out there and they saw the tax problem. They're like, whoa, this is going to be an enormous barrier to every one of these entities that are trying to embrace the asset class. And so when they went and did research on the market, uh, we were there. We had put our heads down. We had stayed stealth. We had been building, 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 knowing that the time is going to come of, of the wave of adoption, right? And we're going to be ready for that. And that's exactly what happened. As you fast forward to this race, uh, we weren't fundraising. Like investors were coming to us. And so we're very fortunate from that perspective to be able to share our story and to be able to show these institutions and these high credible investors how balance sheeting up, how taking on this cash is going to allow us to pioneer this next wave and a much bigger one of institutional adoption. And so it was a fortunate timing. Any entrepreneur will always, any good entrepreneur, I will say, will always attribute some success to timing because timing is critical in every industry. And so that's kind of what happened and how it all went down. That's great. And so what is going to be, you know, roughly the use of funds? Is it going to be supercharging hiring? Is it going to be new product launches? Is it going to be, you know, investing in technology or something else? All of that and more. We serve consumers, enterprises, but one market that we haven't talked about is governments as well. And so regulatory authorities use our software. Yeah. And so when you look about these three ecosystems, each one of them in fintech is a multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity. And that's today's, that's today's like current state of cryptocurrency adoption. You can imagine as this new asset class disrupts fintech and potentially the greatest disruption since the replacement of the gold standard with fiat currency, there's going to be a huge need for enterprise professional grade software to enable this on the both the tax and accounting lens. And so all of this is going to lead to new product innovations. We are immediately helping not just on the tax front, but on the accounting and ERP front. There is not an Oracle SAP NetSuite type ERP right. dedicated to cryptocurrency. Like we are building the first SEC big four grade right now. So that's one product launch coming latter half of this year that we've been transparent about. We've got a great list of clients already that we're implementing that with. The next side of things is international expansion. Like tax isn't just a problem in the United States. It's a problem across borders. And so going international with our tax and accounting products to be able to solve this across the world is a huge piece of the funds. Third is just scaling. You can imagine just how much data we're processing. Billions and billions of transactions going through the blockchain, through our APIs, 
So scaling a world-class product org and being customer obsessed at every touch point, uh, we have an amazing relationship with our partners and with our customers. So continuing with that culture of world-class product, but also a world-class team supporting those products is a huge piece. And then lastly, go to market. I said earlier in this podcast that I was the company's only salesperson. We since brought on Michelle, a tremendous VP of marketing leader out of the Bay Area, relocating here uh, to Utah, just another example. Amazing talent, but a world-class enterprise sales team to go and get our products into the hands of every cryptocurrency, broker, lending platform, point-of-sale merchant system, and eventually business that is touching cryptocurrency, accepting it as a means of payment, um, is a huge mission of ours. So I think I just spat out a lot of things there. You can see how the funds are important to to this timing, especially of, of enabling this asset class. All right, last question. So you've mentioned, you know, working with governments. I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, because we're in just such an opaque and evolving regulatory environment in crypto and blockchain and distributed ledger tech. Maybe it's, you know, that's just how it seems in the media, but (laughs) that's probably an issue for a whole nother episode. But I didn't think they'd be moving this quickly. So what has your relationship been like with governments and regulators and how are you approaching this problem as you scale? Great question, Ryan. Yeah, relationships with regulatory agencies are really important to us. We want to bridge the world between government and practitioners in order for this asset class to exist. So I think one of the big misconceptions in cryptocurrency is that you've got all the practitioners and all the businesses over here that are super pro, and then regulatory agencies trying to put an end to this. They're super you know, anti. And that's far from the truth from Justin and I's experience interacting with regulatory agencies around the world. They're actually seeing how incredible this asset class is. There's just some foundational backbones that have to be in place, such as how can we eliminate money laundering and tax evasion? And those are the two things that society has progressed so far in the last, you know, 100, 200 years that we just want to continue with this wave of a new asset class. And so we've worked very closely with the regulatory agencies across borders in order to, one, educate each other. What are they seeing? What are we seeing? And two, how can technology solve those problems, money laundering and tax evasion at scale? That way, this asset class can deliver those benefits to society that we talked about earlier on the show. And so, yeah, the government market, it's a core market of ours. Absolutely. Great. And then, Justin, is there anything you want to add there? I understand you have a strong understanding of the regulatory framework and have built a lot of relationships with U.S. regulators. Yeah, it's just very important to stay close to regulators. Part of our services is we've resolved thousands of audits, and that's what we do. We work from the ground level, working with regulators, working with taxpayers. So we understand these issues closer than almost anyone. And so that communication stream and those relationships are very important. Absolutely. And I think a common thread across all of our guests working in this fintech space is just how important it is to keep the CFPB and all sorts of agencies close and informed at all times. So Justin, Austin, you have reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire round. We've got about 10 or so questions for each of you. Some more fun ones, easier questions. Let me know if you're ready. Let's do it. Rapid fire away. All right. First question. I'm excited to hear this one. What did you do the night that you raised your $100 million Series A? Oh, man. We hadn't slept for many days, so it was very uh, anti what you would think it was. We went to bed and (laughs) slept well that night. Love it. All right. How about first time each of you bought Bitcoin? Go ahead, Justin. Uh, About 2016. It should have been earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I was later. I was 2017. 
Did you hold during the, did you have diamond hands during the, the crash? Oh man, Justin and I both got into the whole altcoin world, getting into the ICO craze, chasing the gold, as others have said. So we have uh, had our fair shares of ups and downs on the investment journey. What we've learned is buy and hold, dollar cost averaging, treat it like any other investment. That's our opinion, not financial advice, but we've since learned from that those crazy days. You might want to sell if you have a tax loss opportunities. But other, yeah. other than that, let's hardest going, tax losses. Yes. Absolutely. I love this free advice. All right. How about toughest part of building tax bid? Oh, just the consistency. Day after day, it's a grind. There's no work-life balance per se. It's a work-life integration mindset where if you're going to found a startup, be prepared. It's all encompassing. And so you've got to bring it day after day after day, even when you're mentally tired and fatigued. Uh, It doesn't matter. So find your passion, love what you do, because that's ultimately what's going to get you through. Nothing else. You've got to love it. Now, Justin, favorite part about working with Austin and then Austin, favorite part about working with Justin? I think I'd say we complement each other's expertise. So I come from kind of the legal background. Austin comes from the accounting background. And so we're tackling some of the hardest issues coming from different angles. And that's fun, you know, and that team keeps on building out. We're hired more and more CPAs and tax attorneys, but it's fun working on those uh, kind of difficult issues together from different perspectives. That was such a such a polite, good answer. I'm going to just be real. It's it's giving each other shit and keeping it real and having fun. That's not even just between brother co-founders, but yeah. our whole leadership team, having a culture where you can have fun while you're trying to change the world with through technology is so important. It can't just be all business, all seriousness. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. All right. How about best part about Utah that people are missing out on? Got to be the outdoors. You know, you've got mountains right here at your fingertips. We're looking at them right now. Mountain biking, snowboarding, hiking, camping, you know, outdoor social scenes where concerts are up in the mountains. It's just a unique landscape, I think, geographically. And last few. First one, who is your dream board member? Oh, man, that's a good question. Justin, you've got one. I mean... I- <laughs> I've got, I'm a, I love sports. So my favorite athlete, my fi- model girl is Derek Jeter um, and what he did in York. And so I love Derek Jeter. And I know he's a businessman as well. And so I think he could add a, a unique perspective here. I know that's an untraditional answer. Justin, go ahead. Uh, I don't know. That, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess. Justin's like, we have an incredible board. We have a dream board right now. <laughs> yeah, the same political <laughs> answer. Anyone, Justin, Mark Cuban is actually a common answer when I ask this one. Yeah, I think it'd be someone definitely very strategic. So I'd have to think that one through a little more. And I have to say, as growing up in the shadow of New York, I love the Jeter answer. He was my hero as well. All right. Now, how about your dream guest to hear on the Wharton FinTech podcast? If you could maybe get a president or another (laughs) highly regulated official speaking on these topics, that would be it. I I think you'd get a lot of views. (laughs) Oh, wow. Justin loved the political lawyer landscape. I love the sports landscape. So I'm going to stick with Jeter. Like, uh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's bring an athlete with a business mind. Cuban's actually a good name, too, because he's mm-hmm. in both of those worlds. But I love kind of the similarities and analogies between sports and business. And so that's what kind of fascinates me. Yeah. So on the president front, although Trump was a Wharton alum, I don't think we were able to get in touch with him. We would love to have Biden on if he's listening as well. And then on the athlete front, we have been working on A-Rod quite a bit. I think we're getting close to getting him. We've also been in touch with Cuban's team. So Wharton FinTech listeners, stay tuned. We may have them on. 
last question. Let's say, you know, COVID is a distant memory. The whole world is vaccinated. World is back to normal. What's the first blowout vacation the Woodward brothers are going on? <laughs> oh, this is going to be, this is going to sound like a horrible answer. I can't wait to go and have dinner and drinks with our partners and clients again. Like I was traveling to the Bay in Manhattan every week. And then these were some bonding moments where these people have become, you know, best of friends. And so I'm really excited to go back to the big cities and just have society open up because business is about relationships and it's friendships. And these relationships are going to last well beyond lens of time of the, even the businesses that you are in. Uh, I've seen that with Qualtrics. I have a whole alumni network that we stay close with and all the partners and clients there. And so uh, that's just one thing that I love about business in general are the people that you meet all around the world. Justin, is that going to be your answer too? You know, we're quickly growing international. I think I'm, I'm excited to go to some of these places that we're expanding to next. Well, Austin, Justin, it was fantastic having you both on the podcast today. It was great having you on in the wake of this Series A, and we are very excited to share your story with our listeners. Appreciate you having us, Ryan. Great podcast. We're big fans of what you're doing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.